Hey, everybody, welcome back to Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're up to over at blisterreview.com. And once again, we are broadcasting this episode from our home here in the Gunnison Valley of Colorado. And now would be a good time to start planning a trip here to experience our wide open spaces and do some running or hiking or biking on our vast network of trails here in Gunnison and Crested Butte. Okay, this week, Brendan Leonard and I are talking with Peter Bromka. Peter grew up in Portland, then ran at Tufts University in Boston, started trail running in and around San Francisco, and now is back in Portland where he lives and also runs for the Bowerman Track Club Elite program. But in addition to training hard and running fast, Peter is very focused on writing about running itself And not just the stories that are sort of related peripherally to running, but to the act and the exercise and the discipline of running itself. And in this conversation, you'll hear more about Peter's story and how he is currently thinking about this other pursuit of his. And I would highly encourage you to check out Peter's writing, which you can find at peterbromka.com. We'll have a link to that in the show notes to this episode. And we're going to be talking about a couple of Peter's pieces in this conversation. And I'm confident that that is going to wet your, you know, proverbial whistle. One other thing, today's episode is presented by Survivor and their new Survivor Endurance phone case for the new iPhone 12. Now, I imagine that many of you, like me, run with these, you know, fancy pocket supercomputer phones that we all carry around. And especially if you've recently pulled the trigger on a new iPhone 12, you should protect that thing. I've been using the Survivor Endurance case for a while now, and perhaps especially when I'm running, even more than when I'm mountain biking or skiing, I really like that it is a lightweight and pretty slim case that still offers solid protection from those unexpected stumbles on the road or trail, or, you know, those more mundane phone drops in the kitchen or living room that we all seem to eventually have. And you can see this Survivor Endurance case and read more about my experience using it on the Blister website, and we'll include links to that write-up and to the Survivor Endurance product page over at verizon.com. So check it out and protect that shiny new phone of yours. And now let's get to our conversation with Peter Bromka, and we'll have Brendan Leonard kick things off. So... Here we go. Peter Bromka, thanks for coming on our Off the Couch podcast about running. I know that you think people spend way too much time on people's origin stories about running. So please tell us your origin story in 45 seconds or less. There are photos of me running before I can even remember. So that's just the one thing to know. Um, I feel like a bit of an imposter on off the couch because I feel like I got started too early for this podcast, but I'm excited to talk. Um, Then I ran growing up a little bit, but played soccer because that was more fun. 
Um, there were more friends. It was less just pure suffering. But then wasn't good enough to play soccer as I got older. So in high school, I sort of transitioned to running more than ran in college. And then after college, kind of put it down because it figured like you're in your 20s. There's a lot of other fun stuff to do. But then really picked it up in my 30s and have leaned into doing it all the time now. But um, really started a long time ago and it's ebbed and flowed in how much I focused on it. Grew up in Portland, which is uh, known for running, a state known for running, Oregon, um, and yeah. ran at Tufts University. And I guess if people have heard of you in the past couple of years, how would you say that they would have heard of you? I have been running marathons for the past like seven years now. And then I, six years ago, started posting write-ups sort of glorified race reports that have turned into essays that have turned into longer form pieces. Um, so I have been really telling stories about running, about marathoning. Um, and that's where more people have heard my name over the last six years. I don't know if this is accurate to say, but you're probably one of the more famous people who did not qualify for the Olympic trials. Oh, yes. Uh, that was that was fun. You, the distinction you don't look for, the silver lining. Um, but yeah, I think there was... One guy, Jake, who finished right ahead of me at one race, and, and then I was the fastest guy not to make it at another race. So, um, yeah, it's kind of cool to know exactly where you stack up because everyone who made it in was a little faster. Yeah, so right on that cusp, and that was super fun because most of the time you finish at these races and you don't know what the like list would look like if everyone was brought together. You know, you're like, well, yeah, this was New York or that was Chicago, but what would it look like? And no one really keeps a list really well of like the whole country so then to know like okay i just missed out on this thing this is a very clear list well at least i know where i stack up like question answered <laughs> the sad part is is like you i think it's like the little kid competitor in you, in you you're like well that's how i stacked up when we all ran separately but the whole goal would be you get together and try to beat some people and get beat by some other guy so i mean that that was the that was the sad part about it is didn't get to kind of go after that competition and you missed you missed by two seconds is that correct yeah then they round up so it was one and a half seconds yeah in road racing there's no point second so they always roll up well peter since you've already opened by saying you're kind of an off-the-couch imposter which i appreciate i appreciate you coming out right from the start and getting that out of the way yeah are there any activities where you are more of an official off the coucher? Oh, well, this is the thing about running. It's like a great thing to be off the couch at because it's relatively safe. You know, like, I mean, I think we all had that experience. I walked out of free solo and I turned to my wife like, aren't you glad I run? Like, it's just so safe. I... You know, being generally fit in my 20s, I was living in the Bay Area and everyone's like, you got to get a bike, you got to get some carbon, you got to get after it. So like I buy a bike and then we get to the top of a hill and I'm able to make it that far because I'm pretty good cardiovascularly. And no one teaches you how to descend at like 20 to 30 miles an hour. And I, I mean, I literally one time flipped over the handlebars, luckily at low speeds, but I, I landed on my back and you know, no one waits for you. So you catch up to the guys and they're like, where were you, man? And you're like, I was, I guess I could have broken my head open on the pavement, but I didn't. Yeah. So not, yeah. And they're like, oh, cool. Um, and I'm like, this is, this is horrible. But 
so to be off the couch at some of these things, I, I think when I talk about running, people are like, you make it sound like it's relatively easy because you do a lot of it. And then I go w watch my friend skate ski and I'm like, I want to be able to dance on snow like that. Like that looks, and now all your photos that you take make sense. Like the day seems like it would like, you don't kind of get stuck like I did at the bottom of the the skiing area and then just have to like trudge out. So I think there's a lot of parallels where like endurance guys will be like, oh, want to you do some mountain climbing, like, let's do that. And you're like, no, just because we can run 20 miles doesn't mean we deserve to be putting ourselves into harm's way out in the backcountry. I'm trying to think of the worst off the couch sport. Like, I'm like, <laughs> like free soloing would be up there. That and shark diving. Or MMA. Yeah, just like casual. Casual MMA. <laughs> <laughs> well, I always say about MMA, like, I can understand how you do it once. Yeah. But then after you get headbutted, knocked out, I, I'm just blown away. People will go back. I don't know. I got I got friends who I'm like, yeah, they're like, we should get together for a run. And I'm like, with you, we should get together and drink coffee. Like that, I can keep up with. You know, like exactly, Brendan. It's the worst part of doing this podcast is that I get invited to run with people now all the time, and I'm like, this will not be enjoyable for you. I mean, we can, oh. if we eat burritos, I can sit and talk to you and it will be fun yes, for both of all us. Day. But yeah. Well, like... Brendan, I was curious. Brendan and I went on a trail run with another, with a woman and I was, I was conscious of my cues. Like, what are the cues I can send that I'm really not going to try to one up anyone here? You know, I think we let, I think Allison was leading at first. Like I, as someone who's sort of people think, oh, you're going to want to go ahead. I try to defer to make it clear you know this is not that run Allie was fast too also a boss also a boston marathon qualifier so <laughs> well Lord. i knew she would take care of business yeah i was clearly out of my element but yeah i know it's like so yeah go ahead wait a minute you guys now have to give us a bit of the backstory here which i told brendan we should start with this and he of course said we shouldn't but now you're talking it's like you're playing insider baseball i don't oh, know what's sorry. happening yeah. that's annoying. so I don't know if it's how you guys first met or at least this last time you were hanging out together. Probably first met in person um, at a, the Free Flow Institute um, writing workshop that I think Brendan has mentioned on the podcast recently this yeah. September, um, which was five days off the grid down on the Rogue River writing workshop and river rafting with some awesome people. Yeah. And then so there was right along the road where we were there was a single track trail that Allie a woman on our trip had already run a while back um so when we asked where the trail was she knew exactly was this a trip filled only with like elite elite marathon runners <laughs> no was that that was is that why you didn't ask me to go two, Brendan two, two very fast people and then um okay. and then the rest of the rest of the students were normal um and <laughs> with like like uh -huh. me um so no, it was it was more it was a writing workshop, and then there was a couple of days where there was a little time to to be able to run. So we we ran we ran one day, and then uh, they ran the last day. I assume much faster than. Oh yeah, but but yeah. Um, so I think on the second to the last day or last day, we read a piece that, that I was working on about running. So it became clear to the rest of the you know participants that I run a lot. But to just step into a world where you're meeting people for the first time and you're meeting them sort of like on fresh terms it didn't have to be about running for a bunch of days and we weren't really running because we were rafting and doing other stuff um so that was kind of 
a fun experience to just start off on those terms. Not have to be Peter the runner right from the jump. <laughs> exactly. And have people tell you, like, I don't like running, so I'm not going to like your story, basically, but I'll read it anyway and workshop it from that perspective. That was pretty fun, actually. To, <laughs> that was pretty fun. To. Yeah, exactly. I was trying to develop some spectrum of like, there are assholes who are fast and there are assholes who are slow. <laughs> and there are really great people who are fast and there are really great people who are slow. So like, that's sort of what it boils down to for me is because there's oftentimes people assume like, oh, that person's fast. We have to pay them, you know, deference or, and you're like, no, that was a jerk comment he made. Like, I don't care how fast you are. Or that person could be super insightful and super kind and um, be any speed really. So that was, that's sort of what I'm always trying to get at, I think, as I get older and write about running more. And so I, um, it was fun to meet people and not just immediately have them know how much, how seriously I take it personally, because then I could like genuinely hear their stories and they, I think, didn't assume as much. What's I think interesting to talk about with you, in my opinion, is that you have sort of coincided. Uh, yeah, at the same time, I guess, found a writing voice and, or a, maybe a writing, um, like a topic really, as well as a running voice in the past, I don't know what, six years. Like that's, yeah. that's been uh, sort of a coincidental. And I'm wondering how you feel about, actually, can you talk about how both started? Cause you had gotten out of running for a while and then what, what brought you back in? So I was running casually, like few times a week with friends or just after work or before work just to clear my mind so i was in fine shape i'd moved back to portland oregon um and was enjoying running here on the trails and the roads but then the boston bombing happened at the boston marathon 2013 and some friends well actually after first like checking with friends to see that they were okay because i had friends running that day and the, it became clear to everyone corresponding and following the story that like wow uh, once it kind of reached its end and they captured the man and um we we're like wow next year at boston it's going to be boston strong had come out as a mantra and you just realize oh boston 2014 is going to be and it's just felt important for people to come out to participate and there's a little bit of like you need some blind optimism because i remember the night before boston 14 which i so i went and qualified a lot of people i knew did said like okay boston 14 is going to be really emotional and then it was only like the night before the race but a year later that in Boston 14 that um, my wife expressed that she was actually concerned I would be participating in the race the next day. And I had never crossed my mind there might be violence at that race, which in hindsight, I was like, well, maybe obviously. So I participated in that race and it was an amazing day. I had a fine run, but it kind of sparked my interest in running more frequently and then running more of these major marathons around the country. You know, all of these things, you can find someone who's taken them to the upteenth degree, like who's run a marathon in every state or who's run all the six major marathons around the world or all these things. At the time, I had just had run Boston when I was younger as a charity runner and then qualified and ran it again, Boston 2014, because it was we knew it was going to be this amazing day, and it was an amazing day. Six months later, I got into the Chicago Marathon, and that's when I ran 2.36, which for me was this milestone that I'd put out there because it was sub six minutes per mile. Um, so it's sort of an arbitrary time. It's not like one of those thresholds, like three hours, but it. A, a buddy of mine had been like, I wonder if I, I've always thought I could run a whole marathon at six minute pace. And I was like, 
oh, that'd be interesting. Maybe that'd be worth trying to go after. You know, like any of these goals you come up with. Um, and what was amazing about it in hindsight is that it corresponded with my father having heart trouble, being in the hospital. And I came home from a successful race and he had had a successful surgery. And I just wrote an essay about it that I then posted online. And it almost feel, it makes me feel nostalgic for uh, the internet six years ago because I put it online and a bunch of people saw it. Just I, There was so much even less stuff six years ago, even though 2014 wasn't that long ago. It was one of those things that I don't even know where it came from. And I don't know if I could have done it if I really tried to do it. It just sort of, I sat down and started writing a piece and sent it to a friend and she gave me some feedback. But looking back on it, you sort of read it like someone else wrote it because you just think like, where the hell did those analogies come from? How did those, how did the emotion of, um, I can post it on here, but it has elements of religion to it because my parents grew up Catholic, but then rejected the church. And so I didn't grow up religiously, but it just, these were themes that I had thought about, I think growing up and it all seemed like it came to a moment at that race. And so then the piece I wrote about it, I was like, wow, it just felt like I walked up and like chucked a midcourt shot and sank it and said, okay, I'm done. Like, I don't want to try to replicate that from a writing perspective. And so then, but that did start to light a fire of like, well, there's people reached out to me and said the piece meant a lot to them. There was elements of family, elements of competition, sort of like I wrote a lot about in that piece about how like running with the six minute pack of men, essentially, you don't really sign up for that. You just, if you can run six minute pace, you fall in to this group and this pack emerges. And so you're sort of, you become this team all with a collective goal. And maybe at the very end, you want to beat each other, but for the most part, you're helping each other out and just trying to describe that camaraderie and how much it meant to me. So it, it emerges this thing of like, wow, that was way more meaningful than I thought it would be, you know, running Chicago marathon, I assume would be fun, but wow, was I like, that was really cool. So then pulling on that, um, for the last couple of years, as I've run more races and written more pieces, my mom asked actually at one point, like, where did this come from? And I said that all I could assess was that I had grown up with an education around writing and around storytelling, but it had never really had anything I particularly needed to say. I didn't have a story I needed to tell exactly, but as I began to run more races and think about the sport more and meet people who were interested in the sport, um, I started to see the types of topics that I've gone deeply into over the last half decade. And so, yeah, that's been, you know, something you pull at and find more there. And then you look back and think, I've posted dozens of essays to medium.com. Like that's not something I thought I was going to do or had any intention to do. You just said you had an education where you were around writing and sort of grew up around writing. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I went to a school, so like growing up elementary, middle high school, um, had good writing instructors, English classes, his, demanding history teachers that forced me to you know, think logically and write essays. Um, and then I, ha I was fortunate to, I studied anthropology in university and my university professor was a former reporter. And so his whole thing was like, well, just because you're writing about the text that you've read and anthropological theory doesn't mean, you know, maybe even for his sake that the hook of the story needs to be super boring and dry. Um, so he really compelled us to try to look for 
lead-ins that were interesting, a la, you know, reporting, a la, you know, magazine writing, and just not make it um, super straightforward, only trying to hit the bar of the assignment, but also looking for what's something that would make this interesting. And it, it wasn't per se like, this will allow you to get a job in marketing, but it is kind of like the classic tropes of uh, working in brand, working in storytelling, um, working in an environment that, so when I got out, I work in the design consulting world. I got out and I decided I wanted to work at a design firm. Um, and people were like, you studied anthropology. What are you going to do with that? And you know, it's, that was a really gut check moment in my life. I'm not sure how it was for other people, but that moment where you got to go get a job and you're like, Ugh, like this is, um, it was a hard moment for me, but what I said to someone in like a moment of, you know, defensiveness was like, well, like, I know I can write, you know, like I, I've been pushed on those skills and I've been tested and I've been knocked around. And so that was something that I used to get into the commercial world, but I wasn't really writing personally. I wasn't journaling or I didn't consider myself sort of an essay writer. But, but then, I mean, if I look back on it, there's it's easy to see things in hindsight, you know, like blogging was kind of big back then. And I, I blogged about different things. So I, I was never afraid to express ideas in slightly longer form, but just, it wasn't clear that I had any topic to delve into at any depth. I would just sort of write about things and it's fine. And then as I got older, I still enjoyed words and things, but I wasn't writing in any direction and I didn't have anything that I, you know, needed to return to multiple times. And so then as I started running more and thinking about more of these topics that emerge when you spend so much time focused on a passion, that's when I realized like, oh, I don't know if I it's like the the classic thing of like, why isn't anyone doing anything in this space? Not that no one's writing about running, but like, why is no one commenting about this element of um, the experience or that other element that I'm, these emotions I'm experiencing as we aim for a goal? Why is no one, are people talking about this? I want to talk about it. Um, and so that's where you start to do stuff that without a clear objective of, oh, I want to write this essay so people will see it. You just say, I want to get these thoughts down. And then it's fun to share them with other people. Over the last few years, what would you say in your writing is resonating with people? What parts of it do you think that that is allowing you to? What are you hearing back from people when they say, "Oh, this is this really made uh, sense to me because you know blank." Well, so there was a piece. So three, yeah, three years ago now, um, and this is part of this piece that I just put online. Um, my teammates and I ran two twenty three for the marathon, and I wrote this piece. Because I had teammates, they said like, okay, hey, Bromka, I don't know what you're up to, but we're all going to start trying to qualify for the Olympic marathon trials 219.00. We're going to all try to, we had all had slightly different PRs. Like one guy was only needed to shave three minutes off. I had to shave like four and a half. One guy had more like five and a half. Um, but they're like, we're going to do this. So I fashioned it into a piece called Burn the Boat, which is just that idea of like the captain burning the boat and saying, we're, we're going to head across and we're going to um, succeed because there's no looking back, which is just, you know, people have like attributed it to me. And I'm like, just to be clear, you know, these are things you just borrow from others. I think Tony, Tony Robbins says something to that effect. Yeah. Like you want to take the Island, you got to burn the boat or something like that. You got to anyway. burn the boats. Exactly. Yeah. No, tell totally. it. You're much better at sighting things than I am. Uh, <laughs> the, um, so then I put that up and I just sort of laid out 
logically what I thought it was going to take and how improbable it was going to be. But I was kind of trying to commit, create space for myself because I'm like, I'm going to try at this thing and it's probably going to fail. But like, it'd be fun to think through. I think I was on a plane, like mostly typing it on my phone. And what I've been shocked by is by putting it up, the first wave of reaction was like, this is awesome. Like you're going after something, you're staking a claim for your intent. And I thought of it as something rather specific. It was a time goal. It was relative to me and like other, a handful of other people like me. But people have written me from all over the world saying like, that's my favorite piece because I, you know, as you might expect, in hindsight, duh, like they map it onto their life and they think, okay, what is that thing I'm going to go after? And then this guy has clearly mapped out like a few things he needs to do, how even if it's improbable, you know, he's not going to be scared by that. It's amazing what people will say in a comment on like a social media post versus what they'll say in a direct message to you. So I've had people say like, a one woman said last week, I'm so impressed that you were able to put that out there. I have a goal in my mind. I haven't even... I've never told any of my friends. I haven't even told my coach because I don't even know if like I'm ready to say it out loud, but it's what I'm really like maybe excited for, but like she was clearly nervous to even articulate it. And so that has allowed me to see how, yeah, just like staking that claim to we're going to try this. People loved it and they're just have rallied around it. I mean, you're able to see stats and see what's always heartening to me is like when you sign into like medium on a Wednesday and you see like three people read that piece yesterday. And you're like, you know, it's been up for two and a half years. There's no real reason to read it right now, but like it's creating meaning for someone right now, which is pretty awesome. You referred to this too, but your most recent piece that you put up is on Medium and it's called The Bubble of a Dream, which you'd emailed me about before you put it up. And I said, I think you should make this into a book. And when I said, <laughs> when I saw you put it on medium, it's a 37 minute read. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> this is a book. And I like, I copied and pasted it out to see how many words it was. And it's an enormous essay. Um, yeah, but I do think it is, I mean, what we're getting at here or to me, and you mentioned this in the essay is that like you are reaching more people by quote unquote failing at this goal than you would have if you had, you know, run, um, to or whatever and qualified. Right. Yeah. That's what blew me away. And like, that's, I'm learning that, um, I, I try to describe this in the piece and I often use, I'm always waiting for my friends to get self-conscious and be like, we don't want to say anything around you because it might end <laughs> up in a piece. Um, but like, I'll say this, I'm definitely not a reporter. I'm like, you get no right of refusal. I mean, I, I'll, I often don't uh, identify a friend if it's. Um, just a, a text that plays into the story, but a friend, um, my friend with the enormous nose, like exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually he hasn't read it yet. <laughs> um, I texted my friend with the big nose and I said, Hey man, we're, we've been ch friends since childhood. It would mean a lot to me if you read this. And he said, it's in my, uh, short to do list of things to read. But, um, one guy texted me after that race last year, almost exactly a year ago where I missed the trials by two seconds and I was like, I still don't. And he's like a such, he's an emotional, like supportive guy. So he's like, it's so awesome what you did. And I'm like, you know, I had planned to succeed. So I was like, I just don't, I'm so, I wrote about in the piece. I'm not sure why this is so meaningful to people. If I failed, like I was planning to succeed. I was running with other men who did succeed. You know, I know their names, they're good runners. They, they delivered on that final element of the race where I failed. 
Um, they seem inspiring to me. And he put it poignantly over text, which was really great for posterity's sake, because I could look back on it a year later when I was writing. And he said, I think it just pointed out to them um, how how much of a stretch this was going to be for you and how you were still willing to go after it, even though it was way beyond your comfort zone. And I'm like, yeah, that's how the reality I've been living in every day. But you, you know, it's easy to other people and say, oh, Peter's going after this goal. He's got a plan for it. He's prepared for it. He'll probably succeed. Um, where I was still seeing it as like trying to jump over a 12 foot wall and being like, I'll probably run into the middle of the wall or maybe I'll smack my face on the top of the wall, but like, it's, it's not really likely I'll make it over the wall. Um, and so by failing by just a little bit, it pointed out to people like, whoa, he actually was risking a lot when he went after that. And then just the fact that I'm 39 years old and I've had people reach out to me who are younger and I think meaningfully they're like, even the fact that you posted, like I was kind of blacked out on emotion afterwards. You're just like sort of, you're not thinking, oh, how do I want people to think of me? You're just sort of reacting. But I have some perspective on goals like this. So I'm able to not be totally distraught or like pissed off at the world or blaming the weather, you know, types of things that like we all might have done 10 years ago, 15 years ago in our lives. So people are like, you were very composed or your your response was so heartwarming. And I'm like, well, you know, let's try to stay positive about it because it's still just like an amateur hobby. It's not, you know, the loss of a loved one or anything like that. Don't want to blow things out of proportion. And so that was, I think those two combined, people were like, wow, you really were, you actually were trying for something that was hard. And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, you actually have good perspective on it. And I'm like, well, that's because I've been running for so damn long. So that's part of what I tried to loop into this piece that I just put up was like how much or I can remember like the soccer game I lost as a little kid and then the track meet where I didn't make the state meet for the small schools and you know how much it how frustrated it made you in that sort of like raw juvenile emotional way um and so then to feel pains of that again but like in your late 30s you're like this is hilarious this feels like a throwback <laughs> but it still means a lot so <laughs> you'd become a father before this sort of thing happened, which I, if I'm, I'm not a parent, but I believe people will tell you that it kind of puts everything into relief and other things can become not as important. How much do you think having your son and realizing how important he is helps your perspective on this sort of thing where you're like, yeah, it's okay. I still got, you know, I'm, I still got my wife and my son and that's like, those are the important things. Like, is that, does that have something to do with it too? Yeah, absolutely. I think having a family, for me at least, helps. You have the whole spectrum of emotions, but you you can break out of whatever mindset you might get. I might get stuck in, and then just um, you know, you, I landed that evening. He was waiting for me, and just like seeing him and giving him a hug, and you're like, yeah. I mean, there's it helps you break free from whatever you might be thinking about. I mean, I've been thinking about that during the pandemic. I have a lot of friends who are similar ages, who have kids of similar ages. And they're like, man, if I could do this pandemic with no kids, this would be rad. And you're like, yeah, but it's easy to do like the grass is greener. And they're like, man, don't give me that optimistic stuff. Like if I had no kids, this pandemic would be rad. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I mean, <laughs> but I have friends, you know, who have, who are single during the pandemic and I can, witness them get like in a morose mood and not have someone to just break them from it and realize like yeah let's run outside and you know throw sticks across the street like 
stupid stuff that just breaks you from your own mind. So yeah, I think the <laughs> throw sticks across the street. <laughs> yeah. Is that that's the COVID? I, I'm gonna try this one. You don't have young kids, man. That's like that's where it's at, throwing sticks. Any anything to occupy some time. So absolutely. I mean I will say I write a lot about how my father gave me running and gave me it as a passion and we connect about it. I think having a young kid gives me perspective on days to day, day to day and, and life in general. He's too young for me to like, and I try to resist projecting onto like too much of what it represents for him. You know, he's five. Someday he'll like, if he chooses to, he could read some of this stuff and be like, oh, wow, dad was super into that stuff. Um, but it doesn't need to be about, you know, like him running certainly how has the response been to this this piece the 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 bubble of a dream so far it's pretty it's been it's only a handful days yeah yeah like um and again like part of the reason i'm happy to talk to anyone about it is i think we're in this crazy moment of where there's so much information coming at us that what I find is even people who want to read my pieces will be like, did you have a piece? And I'm like, yes, I posted it and I talked to everyone about it. I, I, you know, two years ago, I created an email list um, just to say like, if you want my pieces, like I'm happy to send them directly to you. And they're like, Oh, was that in my inbox? Um, Because when people slow down and take the time to read it, then I've gotten amazing notes from all around the world, from men, women of different, I mean, I'm kind of thrown off like when I remember being a teenage boy runner. And so then like when I have like teenage, clearly young kids write to me and be like, this is super inspiring to me. Um, That almost feels like, whoa, responsibility that I'm not sure I'm ready for. I'm definitely more used to getting the like, I'm an amateur, you know, middle-aged runner as well. And, And so it's been super fun. I posted recently on Instagram about how I had someone write to me and say, I hope you don't give up on 219. I haven't given up on trying to break three hours and um, people like you inspire me. So please don't give up on yourself. And you're like, damn, like, that's pretty awesome. And it's pretty, it's just sort of that bi-directional meaning of just like, thank you for this. And I'm glad I was able to speak to something that you were thinking. I think there's a lot of this assumption that the pros will be able to translate the sport and the motivation for the sport to the masses. Um, And the older I get, the more I'm like, I love these guys, but I'm like almost twice their age. So um, no, I can like appreciate them from the sport perspective of like, Oh, who do you think is going to win the race? But I have more and more trouble as I age looking at them as though they understand the emotional depth of the experience. Cause like they might, actually be at an advantage advantage if they don't think about it at all and they just race you know they just say like so i think people have appreciated that i'm almost to a fault of like indulging the emotional side of the sport and saying um, i've had a lot of people reach out and say like you kind of gave me permission to think oh in addition to a family and a job and a lifestyle like it's okay to go all in on a passion that um maybe some of the people in my immediate circle don't understand all that much and that's what's been super fun because i hear that from people of all different paces you know like pace doesn't really enter that conversation they're just saying oh i'm what blows me away is when people say they are sort of like off the couch they're like i've been at this for two years do you think i have room to improve and i'm like oh man yes like so much room to improve like let's talk about um but then i say like you got to be patient 
because you know it's like it's like the oldest thing in the world you just runners break themselves because they're over overly motivated in the short term and so that's where i try to like slow it down and say to people like just have fun where you are you know like try to make meaning with the lifestyle of it and then improve bit by bit because as much as you think like being fast faster and faster and faster would be awesome it's all somewhat relative and so if you just sort of like live in a state of discontent it's not going to be that enjoyable you, you know it's a thing of like you think if you get 10 minutes faster then you'd be happy the hedonic treadmill yeah, <laughs> yeah. um Along those lines, I had this uh, friend of mine, I illustrated his book about, he's a climbing performance coach, and um, he wrote a book called The Hard Truth, and it's essentially, you know, an entire book of him shit-talking you about why you can try harder, get better, like that. But we think a lot in the same ways, so it's fun to, like, actually illustrate some of his concepts, but he... It's been out for like uh, like six months, and uh, he said I got an amazing message from a 75 year old man that he had been considering quitting playing his horn. That he's been playing in orchestras and bands for 65 years, but after reading the book, he's got a renewed vision for playing. Like, so it translate. I feel like the the sort of thing you're talking about probably translates over for people who maybe aren't even runners, you know, or or yeah. not trying to go fast or, or whatever. Um, but the that sort of inspiration is. And there's also a weird thing around there is the the like the vitality of speed and improving at at like can you get faster this sort of like I was reading a uh, recently retired pro runner quoted the famous quote of like athletes die twice you know like when they retire and they're no longer capable of doing the thing that they once were able to do so i think there's that meaningful there's two things going on there's the like investment in a passion because it creates meaning in your life and then there is the like if you meaningfully believe whatever pace you are that you could that your days ahead of you still could be faster that's really it can be exciting and it's invigorating it's thrilling and you know especially for people who are who came to the sport later and off the couch type runner is like wait a second i i find that in a lot of people i talk to who are newer to running they just sort of spend a lot of their life assuming they couldn't go fast and you can tell they're like wait a second maybe i could try i could go faster or further or do more than i had done um so both i think are true because i think some of these hobbies yeah like are hopefully will be lifelong hobbies and my best friends we always say like the guys i re relate to the most we are definitely more like we want to be able to move into our the last years of our life more so than we want to like it's always pains me to see that like a pro runner no longer takes a step because they were all about the competition and the fire of it and they didn't gain joy from just being out there that i when i hear those stories i think oh i i guess i didn't see the sport the same way as that person this is a great segue from my favorite question to ask all of our guests, which is how how are you getting better as a runner without necessarily getting faster? What I think about is how our minds like really do try to complexify all this stuff. And like there's gear and there's nutrition and there's all these things. But at the end of the day, your body only has like a, a couple different paces it really can run. And then a, a couple different sensations of like, are you getting dehydrated or, or do you need sugar? Um, and I mean, listening to some of your podcast guests, I've been like, wow, this person clearly experiences things differently than me. Like they have a different body and, um, you know, hearing someone who can go for a hundred miles with no food, I'm like that, 
you know, you start to be like, is that a different sensation or is it just an entirely different feeling of it? So for me, it's, it's more about regardless of exactly the pace and whether I'm getting faster, it's getting more attuned to, um, those different sensations, both of training and then racing and finding those lines. And I mean, one of the things I'm most proud of is how I've closed the end of my recent marathons, because a lot of people, when they fall off the pace of qualifying for the trials, you know, totally justifiably kind of like blow up and jog it in. And so for me, it's been like, oh, wow, I'm right in this edge. And if you just focus on your I've gotten better at just focusing on myself and what I can do in that exact moment and trying to hold that. And I think that is rewarded a lot in the marathon. It's rewarded more in a marathon than it is in a 5k. And I imagine a lot of friends are like, Oh, you got to try, you know, ultras. And so I think I would have to like kind of take a fresh calibration to like, wait, how do these same sensations, uh, how do you map them to, more hours you know how do you and and i hear i'm sort of like a new kid when i just i'm like brendan tell me about a hundred miler or, and that's less and then it's less about the distance it's more like tell me about a 30 hour episode the hardest thing i have to trouble articulating to people when they ask how to get better is i'm like you're gonna need to know for your body the different sensations between like this hurts or this is hard and i can still do it versus this hurts or this is hard and i'm I'm going to get injured um, if I keep doing this. And so I I kind of chuckle to myself more recently as I get used to those sensations during marathon training and think, yeah, I mean, I can see why this feels like something that would injure you. You know, like <laughs> I feel pretty rickety. Like you get out of bed and you're like, doesn't feel great. Um, but, you know, with repetition, you learn like, oh, no, if I, you know, do a little bit of mobility movement before I start running, like it'll be fine. I wrote a piece couple weeks ago about like how do you get hurt which is just sort of this idea like everyone has different ways that they get hurt i've never had a stress fracture but some people are plagued by them um i've never had like a ligament tear um but that happens to other people so like but i think we all have ways that if you just look at it your body as a system like you have a weakest link um for me it's like my hips and how like the soft tissue sort of like gets kind of like torn up and starts to just really inflamed in my, you know, ankles or my hips. Um, that is just the signs for me that things are going off the rails where it's easy for other people because they're living in their own body. Be like, well, I've never experienced that, but now my, my foot hurts. And you're like, okay, so that's the thing you got to watch that I've never even felt. Um, and that's why I think it's so fascinating. Cause we each have like these different fail points cause we're, but they're often very, very different from each other. Peter, I kind of want to ask a little bit of the flip side. You know, Brendan just asked, like, in what ways have you improved as a runner if you're not necessarily getting faster? I have to confess, I still have, you know, this conversation with with uh, Matt Hart and this book of his, When It All Costs. It's kind of seared on my brain still I, at the moment. I would imagine. And um, honestly, like, I have to say... In the wake of reading his book, I found myself really just being like, damn it, like, let's just not go after these specific times, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's qualifying times or knowing you're not going to get on a podium in a given race if you're not coming in at at, a, at this particular time. You're not going to beat these, yeah. you know, one or two or three people. and. I'm really like, I'm kind of hung up on this a bit. 
And so I would just be interested to get another perspective yourself having very recently kind of had this very specific number, right? Mm -hmm. But also just throughout your life and the people that you've run with, because I kind of can see highly competitive people being willing to say, like, I am willing to win at all costs, oh, yeah, right? Yeah, like, that's yeah. kind of what we're supposed, like, in a way, we we valorize that, right? So talk to me about the line there or how you see this stuff. I mean, I always joke that the most, like, American irony horribleness would be if it turned out I was doping. <laughs> like, I've been doing this amateur, like, meaningless to the world progression um, that I'm writing about at length. But if it turned out I was like also doing HGH, that would be like, well, wait a second. Because, yeah, I think there's too many layers to unpack in pro sports. Like they're so overlapping. And I, so I think they're like my consultant brain wants to map out like different axes and where you fall. I mean, my growing, growing up in Portland, Oregon, I'm well aware of a lot of these layers and um, elements of sport and competition. And I always give my dad a hard time. I'm like, you love the sport, but you like, you want to keep your head in the sand. Um, and so it's like, how do you, how do you enjoy it? Um, really becomes personal. The thing I've learned as I grew older was like, it's like this obvious truth that like how you finish is um, let's say like in the world, all the way up to the gold medal and the world record is entirely detached from a spectrum of happiness. And so it's like, okay, wow. You can be Michael Phelps and be, extremely depressed um with all more gold medals than anyone so okay that's a thing i mean happiness and success are not linked um and so and maybe i would have said that you know since i was a kid but it's i certainly understand it now um and so yeah i mean i think if you're talking about the pros and you're talking about who's winning um i find that again all this stuff is on this weird spectrum where I get a little bit like hung up and contemplative because there certainly is like an emotional um, abuse in certain coaching athlete relationships, but man, if like a click less is just setting that athlete up to perform perfectly, you know? And like, it's everyone's you, when you zoom all the way out, you can say, okay, X and Y and Z were objectively over a line, but man, there's so many, and I, people, you know, they're like, oh, it's a gray area, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, yeah, but there's a lot of athletes who have to become a little maniacal to really perform at their absolute best. And I think there is, I'm not personally, I'm someone who's very much willing to live in like two things can be true. And I'm not a black and white person. Um, and that's, I think why I like writing. It's like why I like exploring some of these topics. Well, a guy said to me like, hey, do you hear the definition of training insanity? And we were like, no, what's that? He's like, anyone who trains harder than me. <laughs> like, we always think the guy who trains harder than, like, dude, that's insane. You know, that's insane. That guy's insane. Um, and so, yeah, the older I think I get, I realize, like, oh, wow, all these things are relatively true, and they're just trying to achieve certain goals. So, yeah, I mean, at its worst, it can really sour the professional sports for you or things that you might certainly, I know people my age and older who say like, Oh, I don't really watch the Olympics anymore. Cause it doesn't give me the joy that it once did. And that's the shame, but it also can be totally true. I think the, there are so many layers to some, a book like Matt wrote, because to me, if you follow the thread of Alberto, 
like the overarching theme is we know so little about how the body works um, and how runner what runners react positively and negatively to. So yeah, certainly there's many calls he made that other people would not want to make, but it's so easy to say in hindsight that like XYZ method um, doesn't work or is over the line. But what he is, yeah, if you go read like um, the book about, you know, his life, you see that he was just chasing initially down solutions to his own body failing him. And that led him to opening up all sorts of doors that certainly, you know, a lot of people could say uh, a lot of things about, but I choose to sort of be like, wow, um, athletes, really do live in this, these moments where they just have to maximize the moment they're in. And again, like the things I was saying before, they're each of, they're only in their own body. And so then they're just like trying to maximize the moment they're in. And I think that's actually something that I know less about because I'm an amateur. Like Lauren Fleshman has written a, a lot about her experience of being right in that zone where she really was like, I could maybe make the Olympics, I certainly could, but I could definitely not. Um, and having to make trade-offs, and I find that her story fascinating because of she was she was just forced up against moral decisions and pure athletic like maximizing decisions that um, I'm not. You know, like I I have gained minutes off my marathon while still drinking beer and being like it's okay. Like as long as I just have a beer here and there, like it's not a big deal. Um, whereas objectively, you know, it wouldn't be hard to say like. Well, you should cut out all these things and live like a monk. And I'm more of the, as an amateur saying like, well, yeah, but then I wouldn't be happy. And so I actually wouldn't continue to do it um, if I got unhappy. Um, that's where I do think there's a, a definite break. And I, sadly for, I, I think have a lot of hand wringing around the fact that I, I love a sport that's not that professional. Like the pros aren't making enough money to really it's a passion at the end of the day for them. Like they're not making life, most of them, uh, except for like maybe the smallest, smallest percent are not making life changing money. Whereas, I mean, I read an article about, was it like major league football um, a couple of years ago where you're like, Oh, if you get signed from the practice squad to the major squad you, and you get a half million dollars, that that could change your life. It could change your family's life. You're just talking about like clear moral decisions and why people would step over lines. Um, whereas an amateur, I'm like, oh, I'm not going to continue this if I'm sad all the time or if I'm, you know, uh, if I've lost all my friends. So that, that that's where I think the two worlds are like really diverge. And so I, I wish that there was more money in the sport because I wish the, the pros who are beating, like working so hard and making these moral choices were at least being like compensated with world, potentially life changing money. It's more just like almost a hobby and they're like faced with the same set of decisions kind of how i think about it or i was going to mention this this thing that i'd heard that's uh it's called goldman's dilemma uh, about osteopath and publicist robert goldman asking elite athletes if they would take a drug that would guarantee them overwhelming oh, yeah. success in a sport but cause them to die after five years um but apparently it's sort of uh later research on it was is like not that many people are are into the idea of having overwhelming success and then die. But at first it was, this is like in the, yeah, in like the seventies, it was like over half of runners, this, uh, guy polled would take a pill that would make you an Olympic champion and kill you in a year. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, that's a, yeah. I can see how people I've known have like overlapped with 
a yes to that question in their life, but like, I don't know many, or I don't stay close to many people who are still in that zone. You know, it's just, um, and I would, I, I actually find that like, we're becoming one benefit to more sharing and more stories getting out there is, you know, these conversations around mental health or around eating disorders that are just like, I said to my wife the other day, like, I've been around the sport long enough that I, I feel like I lived through the period where no one talked about eating disorders. Then they talked about, then there was a whole period of like, don't body shame, don't ever mention it, which I agree, like not to body shame for sure. But there was this, I think, overabundance of, it's like not don't talk about it, but don't even accuse someone of it. And now we're, I mean, I think they're almost my peers, men and women who are late thirties who are like, oh yeah, I've struggled with disordered eating. I have not myself, but I have friends who have and you think oh yeah okay like i've seen that person their whole life i've kind of wondered based on you know their either their fluctuating weight or their low weight so some of the fact that these stories are getting out there i think can demystify like oh i bet you know tim had it perfect during those years i bet like i would give anything to have it like him you're you're hearing more about like oh no actually that was a really tough period for him and yeah he was performing well but um you know, is the trade-offs are high. I mean, this summer when we were all sitting in quarantine, the Jordan documentary came out and then the Lance documentary came out. And so my buddy who has older kids is like, yeah, it's a pretty good primer on like, you can be a psycho and succeed, but you might not be happy. You know? <laughs> yep. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, huh, you're right. And I thought the Lance documentary was like, uh, for, huge. I think you had mentioned this, like so huge because it was so foundational to like me at the ages I was at. Um, from idolizing him to then realizing like, oh, this is way more complex complex than I ever thought. And I even remember where I was sitting when I read about his VO2 max and just realizing for the very first time as a teenager, like, oh, I can't be Lance Armstrong and there's a number that defines the difference between us. You know, it just wasn't, there wasn't a ton known about that. And now that's just common knowledge. That's, I have not seen the Lance documentary. I'd... The only people I would say not to watch are the ones who think like they want nothing to do with him. What I left was, it. Un... I posted on Twitter that I thought it was worth watching. And I, someone said, do you all, someone asked the question, like, do you also blame yourself? And I said, I definitely also blame myself. Like as an adult, I am willing to face how much I wanted to buy the, the lie. Um, and I find that to be endlessly fascinating. I don't think it's like, I'm not angry about it, but I was like, um, and I found we are in a moment, you know, with an outgoing president who his unique talent is being captivating and like truly able to own the stage. And Lance, I, I watched the doc and thought this guy's going to be part of our life for many years because he's a unique talent at just owning stories. Um, he's just like captivating as a person, um, which is not true of all of athletes in any sport. And they actually show Floyd Landis go through similar moments in his downfall and not be able to own the lie. They kind of like go a little bit cut back and forth, not moment to moment, but they had just shown Lance own a lie so wholeheartedly that we all wanted to accept. And we, many of us did for quite a while. And then they show Floyd, you know, be like a regular person and bumble about and be like, man, there's a lot of cameras in my face. Totally understandably. And so just to see that juxtaposition was fascinating for me as someone who lived it so intently as a teenager and, you know, had a live strong bracelet and 
and again, can see the total value in that organization and the darker side of it. Where are you going forward with both writing and running at this point? I mean, I can email you every few weeks and be like, okay, get your, get this, you know, book idea together. Then make this a book. I think you have dozens of essays on medium. Like you could literally just compile them into a PDF and self-publish a book right now. But it's a really good question. Actually, what's funny, I've chosen to pour all of my heart into something that I'm not sure exactly where it leads. Um, but I know I want to keep pulling on it. Um, I think part of what will help is the running for me is will still continue. And that to me is like, there's a duality to my running and my writing. And like, I'm inspired to write more about the sport as I do it more and like loosens up ideas. And then from a writing perspective, I mean, I, I got your note about like, you could turn this into a book and I don't know if it's a sign of, um, like amateurism that I'm like, but it's an essay and it's right here. This is what it is. You know? Um, (laughs) I don't know. Um, and so that's a total like newbie perspective. I would love to write a book, but I actually think in, if it's possible to thread a line where it's not an insufferable I'm sure I know there are many amazing memoirs and then there's a lot of insufferable memoirs. So it's like, could you stay out of the insufferableness, but still like explore this element of the importance of amateurism is the thing I'd like to explore. So like some of the threads of what we touched on in this conversation around like why it means so much while not meaning anything at all and just being uh, a passion pursuit is something I'd like to pursue at slightly greater length because um the the thing i'm still trying to understand is like i came so close to this goal and i still don't know a year later if exactly if there's what the meaning of that is um to me it meant so much to like essentially have a to-do list and check off every box until that final two second box of like making it over the threshold and i i don't know how much there is to explore there or pull at or i like illuminate at greater length because i think as much as i'd like to write a book and hope to in some ways a long essay online might touch more people and get around the world faster and and my hope for it honestly is like that it has a slow burn when you look at the incentives of the space of writing about running people are like i mean one guy posted like this is good you could get it published and i'm like it it's on it's online and people are thousands of people are reading it and you know like yeah, everyone has a price. If you said like, put it over on this platform and, and we'll pay you a ton of money, you'd be like, sure. But for the most part, if you paid me, it's not, it's funny. It's not like the grand metrics. It's that thing I referred to. Like, um, it's not the sort of total number of people have seen it because I'm sure there's a TikTok video that like a gajillion more percent have seen. But just to like be able to log on and see that three people read a piece, you know, like on Wednesday. And I think about like that probably got them out the door to go for a run. And um, I wrote a piece that's the most read piece I've ever posted called The Marathon Doesn't Owe You Anything, um, which was just this essay, sort of a love letter to the event. Um, and it's it consistently just like gets passed around and people read it and people write me about it. Um, and that, so that in itself is like super fun to have crystallized something that stays sort of like up in the ether of a sport that I care a lot about. Um, and I've had people text me photos of like, they met a woman who had printed it out and brought it to her first half marathon 
you know, to like remember the lines she was inspired by before her first race. And you're like, that's, that to me is why the closest to why I'm doing this, even though it always starts with me trying to crystallize something I'm thinking about and then trying to stay true to that and get it out into the world. Did you end up uh, buying that book, So Many Olympic Exertions, the one I, I lent you in oh. like the last couple of days of the writing workshop? I totally forgot. Oh, man. I know. Damn. Damn it. That's a, you know, I'm not the only person who thinks that's amazing. My wife loved it. She, yeah. No, I, I, I don't. I, now I don't have the book anymore. Sorry, what's the name of the it's book? It's called So Many Olympic Exertions by Annalise Chen, I think. Yeah. No, thank you. That was sort of folded in this whole river rafting moment of my life that I had forgotten about. <laughs> no, but I, that's, yeah, I, I read that and thought, I mean, this could make a, this is a really great sort of model for exactly. a new Not, type of book that, that we don't think about maybe existing in that way, but it really works well. So yeah, it holds together. That's cool. Okay. Thanks for the reminder. Cause that was, I was inspired. I remember for what it was doing, that it was trying something different than not falling into some expectation. If people want to read your writing, where is the easiest place for them to find your stuff and sign up for your newsletter? Yeah. Uh, PeterBromka.com um, or medium backslash at Bromka has all the latest pieces. Um, I find that it's like, it becomes when you put this much like disparate work up online, it becomes like almost like a web design challenge of how do you, you know, put it up in a way that people can find it because, um, it's, it's like both presumptuous to think it's like super important that it's all organized just for people to find, but you're like, no, I mean, if they liked one piece and medium's not leading and it's trying to lead them off some down some other rabbit hole, how do you like at least help them mm -hmm. find the next piece? Um, so that's where I, I feel like I'm constantly juggling with that. Like, that's why I created a newsletter, an email list initially was just like, I will email you if you, um, when I have a new piece and that, that time it only, they only came out every like six months or so. Um, now that I'm writing weekly, some people actually unsubscribed and said like, Oh, this is not as much what I'm looking for, but other people have subscribed. And, um, it's been fun on just to have a website where people at least can find it. You know, like when my mom's like, how do I find that link again? And you're like, Oh yeah, <laughs> here it is. Um, it's, it's your right email there. mom. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it's been, that part's been super fun because when someone has to like write you and say like, where would I find your other pieces? You think like, maybe I, there's a more scalable way <laughs> to get this out there, you know? Um, so that's been, it's been fun when people have found things and then, yeah, like sent them around because you realize like, Oh, this is not when it makes it beyond someone's reading it because they owe it to you as like a friend. Um, it's a good feeling. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for talking, writing and running, Peter. These are two of my, two of my favorite subjects we would like people to read your stuff even if they can't fathom taking 37 minutes to read an essay um, they can yeah they can I, I i believe in our audience yes i wanted to yeah. be able to turn that off i'm like this is daunting to people you know just <laughs> yeah. like get into it you know it's okay if you come back to it yeah it sucked in thank you yeah yeah but thank, thanks for taking the time this is super fun yeah super fun thanks so much that's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Brendan and Peter for the conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from all of us here in Crested Butte, Colorado, please be safe. Please take good care of yourself and everyone else. Please keep moving forward. And we will talk to you again next week. <laughs>